0: illness our eldest sister elizabeth had been born with heart trouble margaret thinks now that it was a congenital heart disease called tetralogy of fallot a combination of heart deformities of valves chambers and arteries where they are twisted around perhaps some people knew that she would die young certainly everyone knew that she needed special care that she was not allowed to overexert herself or even get angry because if she did either of those things, she went a frightening purple that spelt danger. She seemed to be in fine form otherwise. In fact, she was lovely. As a physical type, she was rather like Ruth. She was well-built and fairly tall, with a high colour and long fair hair which she normally wore in two plaits. If she had lived longer, she would probably have been described as junoesque, One of the best photos, sadly mislaid, is of her standing on the seashore, wearing a stripy bathing costume and looking pensive. She was a powerful character even when she was small, quite a tough rather than a sweet little thing. She could look angelic, as when she became Alice for the Mad Hatter's Tea Party, or bridesmaid at the wedding of Myrtle, the lock's daughter. Yet her good looks belied the aggression which was never far below the surface, She probably bossed Henry about. After all, she was a whole two years older than him, and he was gentler. For years they shared the nursery, had baths together, played together, without more than the usual amount of squabbling. One argument culminated in her saying, Go on then, hit me! And he did, but not terribly hard. Years later, the all-remembering Lockie recalled Elizabeth and Henry both still small, having a furious disagreement, what Daddy called argy-bargy. Elizabeth shouted at him, "'You wish I was dead, don't you? Go on, say it! You wish I was dead!' To which Henry replied, "'Oh, Libberbuff, don't ask such difficult questions!' She also gave Margaret a rough time, relegating her to being one of the littles, though she was less than two years younger than Henry." In a cliquish sort of way, Elizabeth and Henry would link arms and bear down on Margaret, elbowing her out of the way and chanting, Armin, Armin, Armin! On one summer holiday at Pevensey Bay, Mummy was sorry for a schoolmate of Elizabeth's, an only child, and invited her to join us. Granted, she wasn't like us and seemed odd, but we were so horrible to her, and Elizabeth the ringleader, that within a week she went home to her mother, Henry. In 1938, at the end of our holiday in Ireland, Daddy parked our car near the docks in Belfast because he and Mummy had to go and attend to something. Suddenly a passer-by, a rough-looking sailor or dock worker, possibly half-drunk, leered at twelve-year-old Elizabeth, who was sitting in the passenger seat in front, and began chatting her up through the open window. She wasn't having any of it, of course and I leant over from the back seat and told him to go away, and luckily for us, he lurched off down the street. Our parents must have got more of a fright than we did when we told them the story, and Mummy said, Henry, it's just as well you were there to protect your sister, which was nice of her because I'd hardly done anything. As always, when loved ones die, memories are bright and then they fade with the passing of years. The tragedy of loss is not that we remember, but that we forget. She did pretty well at school, like the rest of us, and played the usual sports. She was good at tennis and hockey. She had a good singing voice, and she played piano and cello. But she was really frail. During the last year in England, she spent long periods in East Grinstead Hospital. Margaret A vivid memory of her playing the Intermezzo from Cavalleria Rusticana still brings tears to my eyes. She played the cello so well. I both loved and hated her. I loved her because she was a really good person and became so patient before she died. I hated her too because she was a merciless tease and could reduce me to tears in a minute. I was helpless in the face of her sarcasm. We were never allowed to bait her, to make her cross, to strain her in any way. Be careful of Elizabeth was the rule. I have no doubt, too, that there was jealousy, because she was always given preference, and Henry was devoted to her, but not to me, and we all loved Henry. John was a bright little fellow, fair of face, chubby, highly intelligent, and greatly loved. Everyone found him charming. He could hold his own anywhere, although from the start he was conscious of two layers in the six of us children, with him among the littles. He had so many gifts, but then he got sick. He was just miserable. He always had a tummy ache. He always looked peaky. He was always complaining. We didn't know what was wrong. It was just John being in the wars again. Then he was taken away with Mummy to Chateau in Switzerland, to the chalet owned by Theo Adams, his godfather, to learn how to toboggan, to enjoy the clean cold air, to see brilliant blue gentians and white furry Edelweiss. They went twice, while we just went on with our ordinary lives at home. But he didn't get better. John Mummy and I, just the two of us, went and stayed in Chateau in Switzerland, Mummy must have already been rather ill, which is perhaps why she went. I suppose we went there because my godfather, Theo Adams, was there. His sister, Beatrice Adams, ran a little English school that I think was the one I went to for several weeks. I remember sliding on the toboggan down the hill. I didn't migrate to skis, and then I'd go skating and sliding about. Presumably the place was good for Mummy's health too. That would have been from around Christmas 1938 for two months or so. I've still got a little wooden box and inside it you pull out a tiny chalet with the little silvery bits on the balconies holding geraniums. I got it then, it was given to me or else I bought it with my own money. Later in South Africa he was diagnosed as having abdominal tuberculosis. How many years he had endured it we can't say. But he later developed pulmonary tuberculosis too and it took weeks of bed rest and months of convalescence in 1940 and 1941 for him to get back to normal. He was very badly run down. Mummy also contracted tuberculosis and finally she died of it. Margaret wonders now if the strain could have come from Verity's dairy. We never knew if those cows were tested for TB. That was the milk we used. Her brother, our Uncle Ted, thought she might well have picked up the TB germ in her youth when she worked in a munitions factory and other rough places during the First World War. Whatever the case, it was terrible timing. A decade later, and there would have been the drugs to save her. Despite her illness, she felt pregnant again, her sixth baby Priscilla being born in March 1939. Lockie said later that she had tried to remonstrate with Mummy, but she just wanted to go on having babies. Henry saw her as one of those people who were born to be mothers. She battled on in the household, trying and then failing more and more. We do not know when the illness began, but after a while Mummy could not do much physically, although she was still an important point of reference for us. In 1938, Daddy reconstructed the summer house on the top lawn as an outside bedroom for her, where she could have plenty of fresh air for her ailing lungs and still be protected from wind and rain by adjustable tarpaulins. From her bed, she had a lovely view across to the orchard and the wood, and she used the summer house as a day bedroom in warm weather until we left. Sometimes she slept out there at night, too. When she came into the house to bathe or go to the loo, it was an effort. She would still try to do some job on the way. That was all part of her attempt to keep things normal. She would carry on with mending in her summer house bed, but when she got to her feet, she was just too frail to do much more than get from A to B. Henry She joined us for tea one day. She wanted to pass the teapot to Daddy at the other end of the big table, and suddenly burst out, ''Take the pot, can't you? My wrist is breaking!'' Anyone could see that she had no strength in her arms. When Mummy became ill, there developed all kinds of angry notes and feelings, most understandable but uncomfortable for everyone. She couldn't help it. She was drained, strained, the exuberance was lost. As she became more irritable and severe, anxious and grim, the tone in the family changed. As a child, one doesn't know about all the currents and cross-currents within a family. One just lives in them. But there is no doubt that the interactions became more sensitive as the tuberculosis worsened and as the situation in Europe became more critical. From about 1938, we only knew Daddy as someone who worked, someone who was told not to smoke his pipe anywhere but far away in the garden, someone who slept in the little dressing room on the top floor. John felt that Daddy, in turn, hadn't exactly lapsed as a father, but could not concentrate on his children in those last years as he had before, simply because, in addition to all the usual responsibilities, he had all the concerns of a very sick wife, son and daughter. Ruth a dear little fair blue-eyed dumpling of a baby, was fine until Priscilla came along, and then she developed the tantrums which terrified us all. There cannot have been much time for her to be with her mother. Certainly Monica Dickens singled out Ruth as the child she most worried about in the family when she wrote One Pair of Hands. Mummy must have worried about John, who continued to be ill. Yet John does not remember having a relationship with her. He found the house a satisfying place to live in, and had no sense of insecurity, but, if Mummy featured in his life at all, he could only recall this in a poignantly negative way. John I hope it's a dream, and yet for years I thought it was an actuality, and I can't disentangle it. That one time a little boy was naughty, and I remember in that sense being taken down the passage on the ground floor, that led to the garden, and put out in the snow for a while as a punishment by my mother. Can that be true? I don't know. It may be true as a metaphor, as some sort of description, a sense of the relationship which, for one reason or another, someone couldn't quite cope with. Either of us. Elizabeth and Henry would have felt the change least, because they were her wonderful two eldest children. Elizabeth, with her heart problem, demanded most of Mummy's attention. Henry was a darling, reliable from the beginning, and always lovable. It seems that Margaret was the one who suffered far more than anyone else. She could not even object because of the reason Mummy was ill. She had always been vulnerable as a middle child, who was often on the wrong side of either the bigs or the littles, somehow the one with a lot of responsibilities, but rather neglected in her own right. She was not the ailing yet strong eldest daughter, not the admired eldest son, not the charming young boy, or the cuddly, precocious little girl, or the baby. She longed for more motherly love than she usually got, while taking on motherly duties herself. Margaret it was a real pleasure to have Lockie and Miss Cunningham and such kind people as came in later. Fraulein from the Black Forest made a pair of blue cotton pyjamas for my orange rabbit Nibby, and I remember being so touched that I cried. The Austrian Jewess was not so marvellous, but Monica Dickens stole my heart completely. Never have I met anyone as kind as her before. I remember a repeated severe earache with hot drops in the ears, and Daddy's sister, Aunt Tag, sitting there reading to me, the Jungle Book and so on. I followed Aunt Tag everywhere, and became her dog Fido to be patted on the head. Aunt Tag taught me to knit, yellow garters for Grandpa and a jersey for the poor Poles, and to patch and to sew on buttons and to do a little embroidery. She was very, very kind to me. Priscilla, what a lovely baby! I did quite a bit of caring for her because Mummy was not well and we were short of help. In a sense, she became my baby. Margaret's memories depict perhaps the worst that happened as our household deteriorated. Margaret My life as a child seems to have been lively. I was a bedwetter for three or four years and I had denuded every soft toy in the nursery by eating the fur just as I had removed most of the paint from the nursery wall and eaten that too. I remember being fished, spluttering, out of a water tank on more than one occasion, of cutting my legs so badly when I fell on a corner of corrugated iron that it didn't heal for months, but no one seemed to notice and I still have the scar. I was not lovable. I was scraggy, perhaps hyperactive, naughty, always in trouble, They called me Lord Beaverbrook for years because I was so ugly. I was said to have a bad temper, and certainly I remember having my head held tightly by Mummy and banged on the floor. She must have been desperate with me. When I had committed some awful sin, like not tucking in my vest, I would be sent up to lie on a bed in the spare room with nothing to do, nothing to read, and nothing to eat or drink. I got to know that ceiling. These things stoked up a fair old hatred. Mummy tried to teach me to play, but squeezed my fingers onto the notes so hard that I cried and she gave up. I never learned the piano. Four miles from East Grinstead, the Hammerwood Drive turns off to the right, near Miss Jode's house, before the parish church on the right. I know that bus stop well. There is the post box and the two gatehouses where my friends lived. We were not supposed to be sociable with them, because they were common. Nancy used to lend me girls' own magazines, in secret, because Mummy disapproved of them, and they were not good literature. Of course I used to read them, fully aware of my wickedness, hiding them rapidly under the eiderdown when I heard Mummy coming, because when she found them she confiscated them and got very angry. There was no chance to say goodbye to Nancy when we left in 1940. "'Sometimes, when there were many visitors, "'I had to sleep on a wooden stretcher next to Mummy's bed, "'and if I moved, the whole thing creaked. "'Stop wriggling!' was her refrain. "'Directly one is told not to move. "'It becomes an agony to stay still. "'Slowly, slowly I would move a leg, "'quietly so as not to be audible. "'Stop wriggling!' would come again and again. "'Yes, she was authority.' "'but I could not love her. "'How could things get any worse? "'Yet they did. "'The war came.'